The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You look at the royal family and it's this ancient, massive institution. I think a lot of people fail to grasp just how huge the business of the royal family is. This isn't like Game of Thrones where you have the queen with a couple of shadowy advisors telling her what to do and they're really running everything. This is an enormous corporation of over a thousand people and each department looks very different. There are a lot of, I wouldn't say skeletons, there are a lot of untold stories in the royal family. Welcome to episode 12 of The Firm, Blood Lies and Royal Succession. We've reached the final chapter in our journey through five centuries of royal secrets, scandals, cover-ups, and crises. And in a sense, we've learned that the more things change, the more they stay the same. My sense is the royal family will always be there, partly because when you look at the alternatives, they don't look all that attractive. It's like when you go to Disneyland or Disney World. You don't stop to think how they achieve it because you're so enthralled by what you're seeing that it's just, wow, my goodness, you get this feeling. It's great. I'm so happy to be at Disney. I'm going to spend $1,000 on this, not think anything of it, and go away a happy person. Well, that's what the British monarchy does. From ruthless virgin Queen Elizabeth I to the current monarch Elizabeth II, and via war, revolution, treason, deaths, sex scandals, and betrayal, the details may differ, but the overriding theme remains. No matter how grave the situation, the firm's number one priority is always the preservation of the royal brand. Starting with Elizabeth I, there was a shift in what the brand is. As we know, as Elizabeth I, who was the child of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. This is where the shift started to change. We didn't have tyrant kings or queens. We had someone who put the realm above self and above religion. Thomas Mace Archer Mills, founder of the British Monarchist Society, and Sally Otnes, author of Royal Fever, the British Monarchy and Consumer Culture, explain. When Elizabeth I was sovereign, she was it. She was the brand. She was an absolute 
ruler at that point. There wasn't so much a convened parliament. It was the queen's whim and that was it. The royal family has been brand conscious before there was even branding science, if you will, in marketing. Elizabeth I used to have her courtiers wear cameo pictures of herself, kind of as a brand almost, like cameo pictures of the queen. So the brand survived because it's infiltrated everyday life. If you are wearing your Adidas trainer, you love them. You go to that brand. Everyone has a specific brand that they like. But in the United Kingdom, the brand that is continuous, that is for the people, that actually defends the rights and freedoms that people enjoy, is the crown. People are comfortable because they know what they get with it. It's always there. Most people say it's never changing, but actually, change comes from the top down and starts with the queen. It's never quick. It's never knee-jerk. It's always keeping just that one step in front of the way the public wants things to be. So it always has the illusion of remaining relevant in people's lives. We have also seen that while history may not exactly repeat itself, it certainly moves in parallels. Three generations of the current royals can attest to that. Here's royal commentator Eloise Parker and Richard Menard. There are many similarities that run through between the heir to the throne and the second born. You see it right from the Queen and Princess Margaret, where Princess Margaret was more indulged, she was more exuberant, she got to live a slight, well, a much freer life after the Queen ascended the throne, and Prince Andrew you saw following very much the same vein. Now it's tough to tell whether this is just a coincidence of personality types, or whether it does have something to do with the amount of focus that's put on the future heir to the throne. They're sort of stifled from a very young age with this sense of duty, and it's almost like the family kind of makes up for it by letting the second born just have a bit more fun. Of course, we've seen that backfire with both Prince Andrew and Prince Harry. Prince Andrew has got himself into a terrible, terrible pickle. Prince Harry has disappeared from the family altogether. The word abdication is very much a dirty word with the British royal family given 1936 when uh, Edward VIII, then the Duke of Windsor, abdicated the throne for, quote, the woman he loved, uh, Wallace Simpson. And there have been comparisons drawn with the current situation with Prince Harry uh, marrying the woman he loved, uh, again, an American divorcee, Meghan Markle, and all the problems they have caused by moving to America and setting up a very separate life and causing a lot of scandal and upheaval, which has created an enormous schism between Prince Harry and his brother, Prince William, and I think the royal family as a whole. Now we're going to look to the future and ask, what's next for the royal family and for the firm? If the royal brand is a 500-year-old concept periodically derailed by the behaviour of the royals themselves, the firm that protects that brand has become an immensely complex political operation. Though, as biographer and historian Andrew Lonely explains, perhaps not as smart as they think they are. Yes, I think it's not quite the sophisticated operation that people might imagine. 
there are all sorts of personal rivalries and histories that, that are taken into account apart from the, the question of what's best for the monarchy and or the firm, as you say. We often imagine that it's all completely coordinated, but that's not the case. The, the lawyers and, and PR people are giving advice, but it's not necessarily being listened to. There are often competing bits of advice being given. And, incredibly, five centuries after Elizabeth I created the brand, that operation is still rooted in the intrigues and jealousies that defined the court of Tudor England. And you've got to remember that there are competing courts still, that, that Charles, for example, doesn't necessarily get on desperately well with, with William. I mean, they're having to work together now. They realise that the future lies together. But there have always been tensions between the different, often we say St James's Palace, Buckingham House, Clarence House, whatever, they're often based in the places people live. I think what's really interesting is just how many crises there have been under the reign of the current Queen. This is Jacqueline Roth, the executive editor of theroyalobserver.com. Because you see the Queen and you think of her as a rock, a steadying influence, really one of the great British monarchs, but she's presided over a series of huge crises. I mean, her children have been a disaster. You think of Charles and Diana, of the whole Camilla Gate episode, of Fergie, of Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein, and now with Prince Harry, you've got another huge crisis. Well, I feel very sorry for her. She's been a, you know, one of our greatest monarchs. She doesn't have the support of her husband, and she sees the monarchy that she's worked so hard to rescue from the abdication in 1936 quite dramatically damaged. So the whole thing is a mess. She must be very worried. And the Queen, in some ways, I think, has basically washed her hands on a lot of this. She says, it's not my problem. I'm not going to be around. I just want a quiet life, and left it a little bit to Charles to sort out, and indeed William. And yet, despite the rash of scandals that has defined the last half of her reign, Queen Elizabeth II remains an immensely popular figurehead. Here's historian Richard Aldrich. It's fascinating to see how, just how popular the Queen was. We go back to the 1990s, we've talked about Prince Charles, Princess Diana, the split, the famous kind of terrible year when there was a fire in, in Windsor Castle, and, and this was called the Annus Horribus, the terrible year. And, and there was a lot of domestic trouble, but as many people have commented, in the 1990s, the Queen was never more popular around the world. She'd go on world tours, she'd visit countries all around the world, and, and the reception was just ecstatic. So it's fascinating, I think, that, you know, sometimes we see the British royal family in crisis. We talk about, oh, how how are the British public, what are they making of this? Actually, the Queen is a world figure. The Queen is a world figure. And I think she's as popular now as she ever has been. Really, anywhere in the world, when you are in a diplomatic role, you know you've made it when you've had an invitation to Buckingham Palace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This summer, the Queen celebrated her Platinum Jubilee, marking an unprecedented 70 years on the throne. She is now officially Britain's longest reigning monarch ever, after Queen Victoria and King George III, both of whom featured on previous episodes of this podcast. At a time of upheaval, the Jubilee was a triumph for the royal brand and for the firm. But now 96 and increasingly frail, attention is inevitably turning to her successor, Prince Charles. How will he manage the crises? There's an unknown story. We, we don't know what's going to happen now with, with Harry insofar as the royal family is out. I mean, you know, the bets are on, the bets are off, whatever. But they were both crucial to uh, the prince's modernization of the monarchy when and if he becomes king. Ken Wolfe, former security guard to Princess Diana. And given that our Queen is being ordered by doctors to take it easy, it is right, I suppose, to imagine that in the not-too-distant future, there will be a change at the top. We're in the slightly uncertain position of the soft regency, where the Queen is a step back, Charles is stepping up, but we still, of course, have her on the throne. And everyone is slightly jostling for position and trying to work out their role. And there's no one really coordinating this. And given that our Queen is being ordered by doctors to take it easy, it is right, I suppose, to imagine that in the not-too-distant future, there will be a change at the top. And whether it's Charles, who constitutionally will take that position as King, and Camilla will be the Queen Consort, or if by some magic uh, and some deal, whatever that might be, that uh, William becomes the new king. I think the, uh, the period in British monarchy is very interesting at the moment. Could Charles really step aside in favour of William? There is a persistent rumour that after the Queen's death, the line of succession will just skip a generation and go straight to William. But I don't think any serious commentators believe that will happen. Charles has waited too long to be king to just give it up when his time finally comes. Of course, if the Queen has been on the throne longer than anyone else in history, that also means that Charles, now 73 years old, has been waiting to become king himself longer than anyone else in history. Here's Jane Dismore, author of Princess, The Early Life of Queen Elizabeth II. I have to say I feel sorry for Prince Charles because, you know, what an act to follow. And he, of course, is the longest heir in waiting. The Queen still has an 85% approval rating. And I mean, find me a politician who wouldn't be thrilled, wouldn't dream of such a high approval rating. I mean, 
politicians normally they're looking if they hover close to 60%. So the royal family is certainly still very popular in the UK with the Queen at the very forefront of that. So with such a popular act to follow, how will Charles distinguish his reign from that of his mother? For a start, he's never going to reign as long as she did because he hasn't got the chance to. Unless we discover the secret of eternal life in the next few years, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. So I think he won't try to compete with that. I think Charles is very steeped in tradition. He's very keen to preserve the monarchy. He's also... He gets a bad rap. Prince Charles, you know, has been long maligned since the days of Diana when he, you know, came off terribly in the media with that scandal. I think he's the kind of person who, if you actually sat down and talked to him, you'd probably find him one of the most interesting members of the royal family. He will focus on things that, that, are, that are very important to him, which is the environment and so on. So, but I think he's got to be careful because he's a very different personality to her. He is, I think, a bit more moody and a little bit more prone to slightly self, not self-centeredness, but looking inward. Perhaps he's more introspective than she is. He's very interested in environmentalism. He's very interested in art. He's very interested in, you know, historic preservation. And, you know, all those would make him, I think, a very good modern king. I think those causes are sort of increasingly becoming causes that young people are actually very interested and engaged with. It's almost like people have sort of caught up to him in a way, culturally. I mean, interestingly, some of the things that he used to do, like he was a climate change advocate way before it was popular, that's actually come back to kind of help him. Now he looks prescient, like he had some kind of crystal ball. However, Charles's interest in such causes could prove to be a problem rather than an asset. It is one of the fundamental principles of the modern royal family that the monarch simply does not get involved in politics. I think there's a risk with Charles that he's a little bit more politically motivated than his mother. There's always been a slight worry that Charles might dabble with the government a little more than the Queen has, which could become problematic as the nation's king, where being apolitical and not having a political opinion is paramount to maintaining the popularity of the royal family. He's done some things, though, that you're not supposed to do as a royal. He has written some things that are political, and they've been sort of distributed publicly. He writes opinions about different economic activities of Britain and stuff, and he's not supposed to do that. The monarch is not supposed to be politically involved. That's Parliament's role. He's got to be careful. He's already People have already criticised him for stepping into political boundaries when he speaks about, um, you know, saving the planet, which he was talking about years and years ago before awareness was really there. But from a political perspective, from the view of preserving the monarchy, it could be seen as very short-sighted because, of course, this kind of thing can really backfire. Once you start meddling in politics, it's very hard to pull back. And, as we have seen with Harry and Meghan, when it comes to environmental issues especially, the accusation of double standards can be very difficult to avoid. And he is a, a force, you know, that has tremendous power. And people do take him seriously. Although, you know, he has to be careful talking about climatization and the use of fossil fuels and petrol. It, it's, it's quite easy to say, well, my master Martin is, is actually fired up by 
misused uh, or disused uh, olive oil and, and, and grape juice from, from somewhere else. Not everyone in this country has that, that connection whereby they can fire up their cars with, with grapefruit juice or whatever it is. I, I, I think, you know, you have to be very careful about hypocrisy. And I think sometimes it's difficult, but that doesn't detract from the fact that he genuinely believes that, that he is a, a tour de force for trying to bring about changes to save the planet, which he's, you know, seriously concerned about. And royal commentator Richard Menards believes that despite his age, Charles could prove to be something of a radical modernizing force for the royal family. And I know that Prince Charles says that uh, when the Queen goes to more heavenlier pastures, that he wants to open Buckingham Palace to the public more. Uh, it's already open uh, during the summer. And also they've recently opened the Royal Gardens there, 39 acres of gardens in the middle of London. And I think that he also wants to open uh, the Queen's home in Scotland, Balmoral, that was built by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, so that people can actually go in and see more about the royal family. So I think he wants to make the, the whole idea more open, because you know, there was always this risk years back about shining too much light into the royal family, and it was kept a very shuttered institution. But I think Prince Charles realized that it has to be more open and also accountable to the British public. They're always grumbling about how much the whole thing costs. If the British public grumble about the cost of the royal family, the main focus of those grumbles is often that this cost also appears to include funding the lavish, often apparently frivolous, lifestyles of a slew of minor royals. In what would be a truly radical development, it seems that Charles has a plan for that too. We're going to have a much more defined, minimal royal family, given the vision of Prince Charles. And that would not include people like uh, Andrew and, and Edward and the others. He wants the whole thing trimmed down. So essentially, it will just be him and his wife, Camilla, and then, of course, his son, William, and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and their children. And that will be essentially it, uh, because Charles thinks that the British public is not ready for an expanded royal family. I wants to trim it because he realizes what the general feeling is. The def you don't have the deference to the royal family that they might have had in the last 50 years. So things are changing. Charles, Camilla, William, Kate and their children. Keen listeners will have noticed one very notable name missing from that list. As the crown is passed on to Charles, and then, before too long, from Charles to William, the biggest obstacle to a smooth succession, and the biggest headache for the firm, is Prince Charles's second son, William's brother, Harry. His former butler to Prince Charles, Grant Harold, who remembers the boys as children. The boys, when I was there, there was a, a, an amazing bond between all of them. But that's why when people started saying there was a breakdown, there was a breakdown between William and Harry, and Prince. And I was denying it. I was saying it's not true because they just they just wouldn't happen. Because when I was there, they they were that close. I never could imagine them not being close. So yeah, so it was a bit of a, a strange one for me to suddenly realise that you know that relationship has obviously changed. There is no question that William and Harry were always seen as almost an entity. Certainly, they got on tremendously well, although with it. Royal commentator Richard Fitzwilliams. One of the things that was wrong with the way that we all maybe approached uh, Harry and Meghan and 
their relations with William and Catherine and how this worked was the so-called Fab Four. This was a, it was an idea. It was a sort of press construct. The palace, I think, played into it. People thought that because the brothers had been so close, so their wives would be like wives and all four of them would get on because there was the royal foundation. And that was involving William and Catherine and Harry and Meghan was supposed just to fit in. As we heard in the last episode, Meghan most certainly did not fit in. So much so that following their marriage, she and Harry have all but quit the royal family completely. The problem with William and Harry is you've got two very different personalities. William is all about self-control with the weight of the monarchy on his shoulders. This is what he does. Harry, on the other hand, has always had a little bit more freedom. He's always been a little bit more emotional. He was sent off to military academy instead of university like William was. Really, I think, to keep him busy, to keep his nose clean and um, to not have him go off the rails perhaps as much as he might have if he hadn't been within the confines of military life. I think it's inevitable that they were going to go their separate ways. William doesn't have a choice uh, other than to be on the path to becoming a future king and it seems to be something that he's accepted with grace and hard work and he's certainly married to somebody who is very in tune with that. Harry on the other hand married someone completely outside of the royal bubble. And she kind of showed him another way to live. And it was inevitable that he was gonna experiment with that. I think it's something that he himself has always wanted. As Eloise Parker explains, it may not be Harry turning his back on the monarchy that's the real issue, but what he and Meghan have done since. The problem is when you look at Harry and Meghan doing Oprah, for example, by doing Oprah Winfrey, Meghan went right back to the heart of the entertainment industry that she grew up with. It could not be further from British culture. It was the nuclear option. It was sort of sending a torpedo right to the heart of the British monarchy. For Harry and William, it was essentially Harry trying to torpedo William's career. It is tarnishing the name of the royal family and is tarnishing the name of William's future. This was not just a professional slight, but a personal one too. And that's one I think is going to be incredibly hard for William to forgive and incredibly hard for Harry to backpedal from. Burst the bias bubble with news.com. News.com uses cutting-edge artificial intelligence to scan hundreds of publishers of fact-based journalism online, bringing their best stories to our site. Experienced editors and reporters from around the world add their own exclusive bulletins. From politics and business to sports, crime, entertainment, culture, and more, it's everything you need to know in real time, 24-7, and without the partisan slant. Get your knowledge unfiltered at news.com. Or check out our podcast for spin-free breaking news three times a day. Because if you don't news, you don't know. That's K-N-E-W-Z. News. Knowledge unfiltered. Daily breaking celebrity news. Free, fresh, and in your ear. 
Hear it first from RadarOnline.com in the Fresh Intelligence podcast. Whether it's celebs you love or the ones you love to hate, we're bringing you the best gossip about the world's most famous and infamous three times a day. Check out Fresh Intelligence wherever you get your podcasts and visit RadarOnline.com for even more news you can't miss. William and Harry may have been close as children, and their bond was one forged in tragedy, but the difference in their personalities meant a clash was all but inevitable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, William and Harry grew up as a unit, bound by the very public, tragic death of their mother. And for years, you couldn't think of one without thinking of the other. Even after Prince William married Kate Middleton, Harry would frequently be their third wheel in the most charming possible way. It felt right that he was nurtured by his older brother and Kate, with whom he also appeared to have a genuine bond. The problem is they were very different people. So while the public created their own narrative as these two boys who found each other after the loss of their mother, I think the reality was very different. You had two people who coped emotionally in very different ways, and there was inevitably going to be a fracture at some point. Ken Wharf remembers how, even when their mother was still alive, this contrast in the brothers' personalities was evident. You know, they had their moments, like any children that age. William, I would say, was slightly more mature as a, as a young five, six-year-old than Harry, who was a, you know, flew by his pants most of the time. People sometimes ask me and say, well, you know, did they know who they were? Well, of course they knew who they were. They knew there was something special about them. And in one astonishing story, how even as a very young child, Harry foresaw how their futures would turn out. I remember one incident which always amused me, and it might just answer this question quite succinctly. Uh, they were travelling down to their house in Gloucestershire one Friday, which was a regular occurrence. Uh, Diana was driving, I was sat in the front, and William and Harry were sat in the back seat, being refereed by the nanny who sat in the middle. They clearly had a, a bit of a, a, a set to both of them, and eventually Diana shouts, stop it or we're going back. And the nanny said, I've had enough, be quiet. Which normal, which I think is probably normal on the M4 motorway on a Friday night with a lot of families. But anyway, eventually Harry decides he's going to have the last word, looks across to William, across Nanny's lap, and said, it's all right for you, you'll be king one day, I won't, therefore I can do what I want. And that about sort of summed it up. I think Diana was in a traumatised momentarily thinking, and said to me out of the corner of her mouth, where the hell did he get that from? Well, there's the answer. They knew exactly who they were. I think Harry has a completely different way of doing things where he's kind of in everybody's face, he's emotional, and some people love that emotion. Other people are completely turned off by it. So I think for William, protecting the institution and carrying on his grandmother's work is his absolute top priority. For Harry, carrying on his own agenda, you know, whatever charity work he and Meghan have found flavor of the month, that's their priority. And it's completely at odds with the work that the royal family does, which is very measured, very controlled, and very thoroughly planned out. He's almost one of those people, you tell him to do one thing and he's kind of gung-ho to do the other just because. So I think perhaps he was not 
communicated with in a particularly effective way by his brother, clearly we're all seeing the results of that. And it's kind of a past the popcorn moment, seeing where this goes. For Ken Wharf, the sadness of William and Harry's current cold relations has significant implications for the future of the monarchy, but is also upsetting on a more personal level. Clearly something did go wrong, something upset either of them, and we don't know exactly what it was. Whether it was Harry's choice of bride, whether it was, you know, the fact that Harry didn't want to stay in England and he wanted to move to America, who knows what it was. But one thing's for certain on the question, had their mother been alive today, she would have been the perfect referee to sort this out because she was the only person that would be able to see from her own experiences, you know, how best to play this one out. Diana, who suffered under the cold machinations of the firm more than anyone, would have wanted her boys to stick together as a team. I think she did want Harry to be William's lieutenant to sort him out. Because, you know, William has some good friends, no doubt. But, you know, it's a lonely place, you know, palaces. People have this idea of a royal palace that once the drawbridge goes up, the jesters come out, the fire eaters start firing. The, the elephants and the lions and the tigers start running around the moat. It's not. They're lonely places. And so, you know, you need friends. And particularly as a brother, Diana, you know, would want that. As to what would happen with Prince Harry, I don't know. I think he's very much on the periphery of the royal family. I don't think the, there will be a reconciliation between the two brothers anytime soon. So I don't think that bodes well at all. Whatever happens with Harry, the bottom line is William will be king one day. And given his grandmother is 96 and his father 73, perhaps one day soon. But what I do think bodes well is that William is enormously popular, as is Kate. And I think that will be the basis of the royal family through the turn of the next 50 or 60 years. If Charles is determined to be his own man, speaking his mind about issues such as the environment, then William's reign may represent a return to his grandmother's quieter, less controversial, more dignified way of ruling. I think William is intent on carrying that torch. And also, William studied the Queen's form. He studied how she has maintained this quiet popularity by never being controversial, by being quietly, it's a, there's a quiet continuity that people respect, enjoy and feel comforted by. Prince William's done an excellent job of staying out of the headlines for anything remotely scandalous. He famously even avoided Freshers' Week at university, which is the notorious initial party week when you first start university in the UK, because he said he was afraid he would end up in a gutter somewhere. So he's been very good at staying out of the fray. He has a notoriously close, guarded group of friends, and he's certainly much more closed off than Harry in that sense. And with William will be his queen consort, Kate, who, as Kenzie Schofield points out, is playing her role to perfection. And when it comes to Prince William and Kate Middleton, I think that they are the perfect match because she, her objective is never to outshine him. Sometimes she does. Like at a Bond premiere, we have to pick our jaws up off the floor. But she's the perfect match for him because she while graceful and while having the ability to lead her objective is to never steal the spotlight from prince william 
And so that dynamic works out really well where she is beautiful and she is delicate and graceful, but she does not need to be the center of attention. Despite the royal family's current troubles, it may just be that William and Kate represent the ultimate triumph of the firm. That duty to the royal brand comes before everything, including family. Here's Jacqueline Roth of theroyalobserver.com. We saw it in Elizabeth I, who sacrificed her womanhood for her country. We saw it with the firm covering up Queen Victoria's two great loves after the death of Albert. We saw it with Edward VIII, who was forced to abdicate to save the monarchy. We saw it when the Queen refused to give her permission for her sister Margaret to marry. We saw it when she returned to London after the death of Diana. Now we're seeing it again with William and Harry. Duty always comes first. They may be called the royal family, but for the firm, family always takes second place to the royal brand. Over 500 years and a slew of very different crises, from beheadings, revolution, war and treason, to shocking deaths, sex scandals and a royal family torn apart, the one lesson we can draw from history is that the royal brand, as protected and perpetuated by the firm, always prevails. Now, more than ever. The reason that the royal brand is important to the House of Windsor is that the House of Windsor has no political significance anymore. It used to have political significance. Now it really only has ceremonial and symbolic and historical significance. That's not nearly as strong of a hook to hang the weight of this brand on as if it had political significance. So the royal family understands that to keep itself viable and visible to the publics with which it interacts, it has to keep itself relevant and pleasing and also accessible. And at a time of unique crisis, right now the future King William could be exactly what the firm needs. And of course, as I said, we've got Charles in the long term and then William, and I think he'll be the saviour of the royal family for the next half century with Kate and his three children, George, Charlotte and, and Louis. And I think going forward, that will still be very much with William and Kate. But I do think it'll become smaller. I think the royal family, I, I honestly believe that the future of the, the royal family is literally the Queen, Charles and Camilla, and then William, Kate, and their three kids. It will be long after I've gone, uh, will be uh, still strong and stable and also popular, because it all depends on popularity. And we've got a younger generation now who thankfully are very supportive of William and Kate and their children. And I think that bodes very well for the next half century. After that half century, I won't be here. So we'll see what happens. And I think that will make it easier because then obviously looking after that is, is easy. I mean, I've said that quite a few times now, you know, it's, it's, it's gone from just being a, a kind of institution to becoming a brand because it's, it's the royal brand and it's a very lucrative brand as well. After Elizabeth will come Charles, after Charles, William, and after William will come George, and so on for as long as anyone can predict. The family and the brand will endure and will continue no matter what. As we saw at the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations, young Prince George, still just nine years old, is already being groomed in the correct way to fulfil his birthright. I 
can't imagine the royals haven't got a little wiser to the pitfalls of sibling personalities at this point. I think also we're seeing Prince George, Princess Charlotte and Prince Louis, they have a much different family life, certainly to the Queen and Princess Margaret, to the very distant parenting that the Queen and Prince Philip gave Charles and Andrew, and to the very tumultuous and tragedy-marked upbringing that William and Harry have. By comparison, William and Kate are giving their children a very secure, very private and grounded sort of an upbringing. So hopefully that will pay dividends as those children get older. This has been The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession. Over the last 12 episodes, we have discovered how, for fully five centuries, The Firm has controlled the crises and covered up the scandals created by the kings and queens, princes and princesses of the British royal family, all while working to strengthen the monarchy as an all-powerful brand in its own right. That's why the United Kingdom does so well in getting what it wants, because there's something in these islands that no other country can harness because they don't have it. It's the magic and mystery of monarchy. The firm has been doing it for 500 years, and they certainly don't plan on stopping anytime soon. I've been your host, Jonathan Locke. Thank you for listening. And it's well known in the intersanctum of those monarchists and those that work alongside those at the palace that those courtiers in those grey suits are the ones that think they're more grand than the royal family. Their opinion is the one that matters. Their knowledge is the one that will dictate which member of the royal family does which event, where they will go, how it will be. So the royal family, you might think that because the queen is the queen, she's the one that says how everything is, but she's the one who's actually told how it's going to be because that's the way it's always been done. The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession is a production of Audology, a division of Empire Media Group. The series is hosted by me, Jonathan Locke. Executive producers are Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin. The series is written by Dominic Utton, reporting by Douglas Montero, mixing and sound design by Sean Kravitz. Please subscribe to The Firm wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, review, and tell your friends. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.